everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. So there's this literary style um, called in medias res, and it, it stands for into the middle of the action, or into the middle of the story, in medias res. The Odyssey, Hamlet. I mean, some of the best stories that have ever been spoken and written on our planet start in medias res. And we live in a culture now that is less about the 20-minute sitcom or even the two-hour movie. We're in a culture that is now telling stories that take decades to tell. And in a moment, I'm going to start my very first church schism. Are you ready for this? This is going to be really fun. Because I want you to start thinking in your head right now, what is the best story that's been told in film that's taken decades to tell? You might be thinking through a handful of things. Some of you right now are thinking it's the Marvel Universe. How could it not be the Marvel Universe? Some of you are going, does every Nicholas Sparks film count? Because it should, and that has to be the right answer. Some of you are saying Fast and Furious, and I'm just going to tell you now you're wrong. It's not, it's nice try. The Twilight Saga, maybe. Guys, um, I understand that this is like saying, which is better, Qdoba or Chipotle? I understand this is like asking Canes or Chick-fil-A, but there is a right answer. And so next week, if you answered correctly, I'm going to have you sit on this side of the room. If you didn't answer correctly, I'm going to have you sit outside on the lawn. Because the obvious answer is, of course, Star Wars, right? Yeah, okay, so some of you will be here next week. That's great. Um, Star Wars. Star Wars starts, I, I can't imagine seeing the first poster and then sitting in the theater and the first thing that scrolls is episode four and being like, four? What, ha what happened to the first three? Like, I didn't get the memo on this and, and it keeps going. And then I was there, I remember seeing the thing scroll saying episode one and being like, wow, this is super disappointing if this is what led to episode four. And then as, as things have continued, and, and we're talking decades and decades, we're like, we're like 50 years in to this story at this point. It's fantastic. And now we're getting things like the Mandalorian, the Book of Boba Fett, and all these other things that are continuing to weave in underneath the story all of this background that at some point makes you wonder, are we ever going to get back to the beginning of the story? It's just so rich and so fun and so robust. And again, if you don't think that's the best story being told next week, it's bring a lawn chair. Um, it's the best. It's the best story. And it's always incredible when the prequel doesn't disappoint the story. And this week, we're just launching into this brand new series, and it's all about in medias rest. It's all about jumping right into the middle of the story. And so often in today's world, it's easy to hear about things like faith or to come to church or engage God on your own. And you're jumping in in medias rest. And that is good. Like there is a story to be tell, told that starts now and goes forward. But man, is there a robustness when we look at where the story is now and we go, well, really, it's episode four is what's scrolling. What came before? And how does that inform what's going on now? That's what we're going to be doing. Sabbath in this last series that we have been in had taught us that we can come to be with God, that every seven days, God said, just set aside 24 hours 
and just come delight in me. Enjoy the world that I made. Let's play. Let's have fun. Do it intentionally. And for those of you that have been coming, how you doing? Not asking out of a place of shame, but asking out of a sense of invitation. Oh, how's it going? I hope that you're getting time to rest and that you're talking about it at home. But we talked about last week that it's not just the Sabbath day that God starts to set up. In the middle of that Genesis story is this word moad. This is what we talked about last week. And moad is this, it's the pinnacle of the, of the literary structure of Genesis 1. And God is saying, if you want to know me, if you want to know where to relate to me, you must moad. And if you weren't here, moad is essentially the word for party. If you're going to know me, if you're going to know how to relate to me, you got to know how I party. You have to know when and where and how. It's literally, he says, why I put the sun and the moon in the sky so that there could be a calendar so that you could see coming the days when it's time to party. It's so cool. And it's not, it's not this celebration gospel where every party is only about just going berserk and having fun, although those are there. Some of them are about stopping and it's a party to go, let's stop and remember where there is sorrow and where there's grief. And it's incredible to see that in Genesis, from the dawn of time, God is saying, you're gonna need that as human beings living on this earth. You're gonna need some holidays where the whole point is grief. It just honors the human story so well. I love it. And God's people got into trouble when they forgot. When they, when they forgot these parties, when they forgot his power and his presence, when they forgot how to relate to him, that's when we got in trouble. And so as we're continuing to move through our calendar year, it just seemed like a next good rest stop to go, hey, when should we be parting and how? And how is it not something that's just up to us, but something that we go, God, what was your intentional, original design with this? We're in medias rest. Can we go back to the beginning and understand what's the robust storyline that undergirds where we're at today? So we've been in Genesis. We've been talking about this idea that God created the world, that human beings were this crowning achievement in the order of things, and that he, it seems like he's really making them to say, I want to tend and manage creation alongside you. You're my partners in creation. I want to do this with you. I want to do life with you, but it's, it's way more than just simply it's you and I hanging out relationship. There is an action, there is a, a tending to the field of the world that God has for us. He chose one group to begin with, so we're going to fast forward and catch up to our story, which is going to happen in Exodus for the first chunk of our day. He chooses one group after everything starts to fall apart in the world. And you would think that he would call together the heads of state and just say, hey, real quick, family meeting, here's how things need to go, everybody back to your corners. And instead, he says, you know what, just, just telling people the information is not going to do it. There has to be a relationship that undergirds this. So I'm going to choose one group of people, and I'm going to give my story to them. And through them, I want the entire world to know what I'm about. The style that he would give them was not military domination. It was not political sway. In fact, it was the reverse. This little nation of Israel had been taken captive and had been held as slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. And at this point in the story, God is saying, I'm going to use those that are suffering. I'm going to use the most underwhelming group of people I think I can find on the planet. 
I'm gonna take them out of the slavery and I'm gonna put them at the crossroads of the earth. Jerusalem at that time and still today sits at the crossroads of where east meets west, of where information, architecture, civilization collides. I'm gonna take that group of people, I'm gonna put them there, I'm gonna have a relationship with them and through them the rest of the world will know who I am and what I'm like. And for thousands of years, this has been a story that we find ourselves in the middle of. Today, I'm cheating because there's a whole list, especially in Exodus and then again in Leviticus, where God says, these are the exact parties I want you to keep. One of them is not weddings. But today we're talking about weddings because it does undergird so much of the story that's going on. Everything else we'll be doing for the rest of the sermon series is going through each one of these festivals. While this one isn't there, there is a treasure trove to be found. Now, as we dive into weddings, especially in an ancient context, I have a couple disclaimers before we get into it. There will be ideas that at first pass you will hear and they will sound a little offensive. They'll sound a little archaic, a little patriarchal. I would encourage you, honor them where they are in history. There is a context that comes with understanding why things were happening the way they were at the time. And I'm not advocating that we need to still be doing those things today, but if we understand as they were happening then, it completely blows, I'm so excited, it'll blow your mind with how this relates to so many other things going on in scripture. Um, I'm also not advocating, um, oh sorry, I am advocating that um, we, I wanna speak to the single folks in the room too. Um, I think sometimes, especially in church world or in faith world, there can be a sense of like marriage is this pinnacle that you must reach, and if you don't, that's not a good thing. And just to remind us as we jump into this, this beautiful word today, Jesus wasn't married, Paul wasn't married. I don't think you have to be married to see this thing from the outside and go, this thing is crazy and awesome and weird and hard and that will not be the point today. And I want to honor you in your place, in your story, and continue following the Lord and what he's up to in your life. But knowing the context will blow open so many other places in scripture, and we're gonna get into it right now. Are you ready? Okay, great. Um, in the Old Testament, if you were a little Jewish boy and you found a little Jewish girl, and you like said little Jewish girl, and generally we're talking teenagers at this point. That's when folks are getting married. This is how it would go. You would gather your dad, maybe your grandfather, if he, if he was alive, some of the town elders, and you would sit down and you would write a document called a ketubah. Lock that word into your mind. You'd write a ketubah, and this was essentially like a prenuptial agreement, which again, you might be like, what? But the idea was this. It would outline what would happen in the event of the husband's death. If he died, she's, there's, there's nothing to protect her. If there's no documentation, if there's no legal protection for her, if the husband dies, she's now completely on her own. That's trouble. So they would write this document saying, this is what will happen. Also, in the event of a divorce, this is what will happen so that she will be protected. That's part of what a ketubah was for. But more importantly than that, and when you read what some of these ancient ones were like, what some are like today, because the Jewish community still practices this, more importantly, it outlines the ways that a husband will commit to care for his wife, to feed her, to clothe her, to adore her, to cherish their family together, to protect her. 
And so it's not just this like, here's what happens if things go south. It's this declaration. It's like writing your own wedding vows, but saying, this is how I will care for you because you're a treasure to me. So they would write down this document, and father and son then would take off with this ketubah, and they would go to the village of this young woman. And the two dads would get together, and, and the father of the groom would sit down with the ketubah, and he would walk through an outline. Here's exactly how we would be taking care of your daughter. And if it was agreeable to the father of the bride, they would then agree on a dowry. And the idea is that there's literally, they're paying for her, which again, should hit some triggers. That's weird, but you need to know a couple things. And this was so fun learning this for me this week. Oftentimes, um, the way we have to look at that is the father of the bride has a business. He has a house that he runs. Much of the time, this would be flocks. It would be an actual business. There would be something that they would be doing, and it took every single member of the family to run that business. And to come and say, I want to take your teenager, one of the most productive members, the one who's learning, the one who will be taking this over down the road, we want to take her from you. Economically, there's an issue there. Relationally, there's an issue there. And so the idea of this dowry was, this will help cover your loss here. Not merely of the work and the business, but of your family. The other cool, which you hear that and you're like, that's not that comforting. (laughs) You hear this? I, I, I didn't know this. Almost always, the father of the bride would turn right around, and if he didn't get, give all of it back to his daughter, he would give most of it to his daughter. And it was very shameful in this culture, and this is an honor-shame culture. If the father of the bride kept the entire dowry, whew, bad news around town for him. And the idea was, again, we're looking to protect this gal. She's starting this brand new life. I'm going to give her land. I'm going to give her finances. I'm going to give her what she needs so that she has something to manage that's hers. And oftentimes, her finances and the family's finances would be kept separate. It's amazing. So they would figure all this out. Here's the ketubah. Here's the dowry. Business, 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 man, man, man. And then, if all that was agreeable, they would get a cup of wine. And they would invite the boy and the gal into a room and they would say, here's what we've agreed upon. Here's the words of the ketubah. Here's the dowry. This is the price you're being bought with. If it's agreeable to you, daughter, you can drink this cup of wine. And there's nothing recorded of a girl who didn't drink that wine, which you can take in one of two ways. But if she accepted the proposal, she would take a drink of this cup of wine. And then from there, this is where it continues to get so cool. Oh, let me show you this. Here's a couple ketubas. If you're like, what do these things look like? This is a real old one. Um, bonus points if right away with, with a Bible mind, you look at this and you go, hey, there's a, this looks familiar to me. Do you spot anything here that looks familiar? Teaser, okay? But um, obviously, I mean, you can't read the words that are there. It, this is incredible. It's such a delightful document. Give me that next one. Here's one, um, this is from more of a medieval time, but again, kind of these two sides. And it's not, these are not his vows, her vows. Oftentimes this would be in Hebrew and then in Aramaic, but this is truly a declaration that is one-sided from groom to bride. Um, Here's some modern day ones. And guys, these are just so pretty. Look at that. At the end, they would sign on their wedding day. We'll get to that in just a minute, but they're just so cool. So, 
She drinks the cup, and then the story keeps rolling. The dad and the son, they leave. They go back home because the son has a pretty significant job now to do. Uh, in that time, it didn't matter if it was a tent or if it was a building, but this was a day and age where when it came to architecture, when you got married, you built a house onto your father's house. So for this, whole, this dude's whole next season of life, all he's doing is building on his part to his dad's house. And you, you weren't done until dad said you were done. You didn't know how long it was going to take. I mean, if he didn't like where you put the outlet or the ceiling fan, you had to take it all down and do it all over again. Only dad knows when we're going to be finished. So that's what this boy is up to this whole time. For the gal, she shifts gears too, because now she's preparing to be a wife. She begins collecting and organizing the things that she would need for her new life. She would, it would be clothes, it would be cooking utensils, it would be the stuff. But more than that, she would be learning the skills of what does it look like to manage a household? What does it look like to manage finances? Because now I've got this dowry and then I've got whatever he's bringing to the table. We've got now a new family business that I've got to learn. She'd start learning all of those skills as a wife. She would be referred to by her family as the one who had been bought with a great price. And until she left her house, that would be one of the terms that would be used for her. Again, if you know your Bible, that phrase pings something in you. Teaser. She would wait. She would wait. She would wait. She would wait. She would have no idea when the father and the son would be coming back. Only the dad knows. But every day, it was not a passive waiting, but it was an active waiting. How can I prepare myself to be a great bride? How can I prepare myself for this life that's waiting for me? Every day, waiting, waiting. And then, considered one of the most holy days of a Jewish person's life, a groom and his family, usually the whole village, would start a parade and they would walk from where he lived to where, where she lived. And he would send one of his groomsmen, a forerunner, and he would run and he would crest the hill of her town and he would blow this trumpet to announce, we're coming, it's wedding time, dad said we're good to go. And you can just imagine in the village below, it just burst like an anthill into activity. Everybody's like, it's, it's happening, we've been waiting for this, she's been waiting for this, what do we need to do? It's awesome. And she, as soon as she hears the trumpet, she and the women around her know we've got to do a couple extremely significant things right now. You need a bath. <laughs> but not just like, we're not just washing you down. This is a special kind of bath. This is a, this is a bath um, that they would call a, a mikvah type of cleansing. And it wasn't just a, I'm washing myself off. This was at a spiritual level symbolic of you are atoned for. Your sins, the things that are wrong, that are messed up, we are cleaning you, all of you, so that when you are presented to this husband that you're about to have, oh, you're, you're like, you're pristine in your soul, not just your body and the dirt, but we're washing you. This, this will get to this in a few weeks, but the idea, the celebration of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, it's her mini Yom Kippur. It's her mini day of atonement. So then she can be presented to her husband as a bride without blemish, spotless, perfect. If you know your Bible, there's something in you that's pinging. Hang on to that. Teaser. 
She would get dressed up in her best, makeup to the max, all of the fineries. The parade would begin as the bride and her town joined the procession of the groom and his town, and they would take them back to his village. And they would have this thing called a hoopah, and it was this, there were these four posts with this big canopy that was over the top, and it, there, there's lots of debate on what that re- resembles, but this is where the wedding's going to happen underneath the shade of this thing. Is it a, a metaphor for their house someday? Is it a metaphor for the temple? Does it not matter because those are very, I don't know. I don't know. Under the hoopah is where it's going to happen. And afterwards, after the ceremony, they sign this. Actually, the, the groom and the bride don't sign the ketubah. It's two witnesses that are not family members that will sign it and say, we saw that it happened. After that, the name that we call the bride changes. She is no longer the one who was bought with a great price, but now the term often that a Jewish husband would give to his bride is you are my treasured possession. That's so cool. You are my treasured possession. They would have the hope of building a family together. Particularly, they would want to have an heir to continue to build on to their family home, both figuratively and symbolically. We want to see our family grow and they lived happily ever after. This is how it would work. And again, there's all these things that that, uh, just start to make your mind explode. And if you're not super familiar with the text, that is okay, because we're gonna dive into a couple places where I hope you just go, this is an incredible piece of literature. What's going on? It's not just a book, it's not just a story. Gosh, the guts to this thing in medias rest, but I'm now understanding all of this robust story, this background that makes today even more alive. We're going to dive in to Exodus. Before we get there, we have to know the ketubah has already been presented to this nation of Israel. God has already come down and has presented his terms, the way that he's going to care for them. He gave it to a guy named Abraham, a covenant a promise that he made, something that had been written down. Abraham had accepted, and after Abraham, uh, and this was after he and Isaac were on the mountain, after God, if you know this story, had said, I want you to be willing to sacrifice your oldest son. And right before he goes through with it, God says, no, wait, I have an agreement. I have a ketubah. Let's lay it down. It says this in Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your offspring shall all the nations of earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. But then we see an absence of God in the story of Scripture for a time. It seems like he goes away, almost like a groom has proposed and the terms have been accepted, and now he's going back home to prepare some space. And we don't see him show up again until Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, God heard their groaning, the Israelites, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we find that God at this point in the Exodus story, if you've ever seen Prince of Egypt, if you've ever seen Charlton Heston's Exodus movie, this is that story. God comes back to his people and he finds that they're being held captive by another suitor. 
Can you imagine being a husband? You have this bride. She has said yes to you, and you come to, to get married. It's your wedding day to find out that she's being held captive in a home. And in the story, it's so cool when you start to see it through this lens. God very politely asks, you need to let her go because she belongs with me, this nation of Israel. And he's met with a no. And he asks again, and again, and again. He's just not willing to walk away because he's in love. No amount of no is going to stop him. And it, he, starts, he starts fighting for her. We see these plagues that are happening in Egypt. And the, the climax of that story is it, it ends up leaning towards death, the death of firstborns in this community. And we're going to be talking about the, the celebration of Passover as we get right up to Easter. And it's going to be a hoot. But God fights for his bride. And that's where we catch up to this story that we've been telling for this whole last series in Genesis that God takes them out of Egypt through water to a mountain where the text is really clear about some things. Check this out and remember how proposals work in this culture. Exodus 19.5, he says, Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the people. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. For sure, right away you go, treasured possession, that's wedding talk, that's marriage talk, that's husband, wife. The other cool thing, though, that you see is he calls them a priestly nation. And this echoes immediately of Genesis 1, where at the very beginning, God was saying, I'm making humankind so that they will partner with me to tend to this good earth and this good world. I'm looking for a partner. And the story at this point has gone incredibly south. And now we see him again going, I've written a ketubah. I've given it. I've prepared a place. I'm now taking you there. You are my treasured possession. Keep the covenant because you're my partner in putting the world back together keeps going. The next thing, if this was where we're at in the story of a wedding, you would expect them to wash. This is that atonement, that bath, that cleansing of deep within. Exodus 19, 14, literally nine verses later. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he consecrated the people, and they washed their clothes. You're seeing the same order of things and the next thing that you would expect then is that they would be under a hoopah. And the text is so clear over and over again in the story, not even just once, that they are under the cover of the mountain. The Hebrew word there isn't just they're next to a mountain. They are under the cover of a mountain. God has brought them to a place where he intends to be with them. Then the next thing you would expect is the signing of a ketubah. And literally verses away, and now for the next few chapters is something called the Ten Commandments. If you're in a life group, I am so excited for you to engage the question this week. If a ketubah is supposed to be something, a document that says, this is how I will care for you, protect you, cherish you, you're gonna read the Ten Commandments and go, how does this show that he cherishes and protects and loves us? Oh, it's so cool. But it keeps going. The next thing he does 
for these next few chapters in Exodus 25 through 31 is he tells them what their home is going to need to be like, what they're going to need to bring with them. He talks to them about this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, about these tables that they'll need to make, the lampstands that they'll need to make, the tabernacle, the house that's actually gonna be a mobile home for a while because they're in transit. They're going to a final destination. He gives them the instructions for all of this stuff. It's so cool, and you start to realize, oh my gosh, it's, he's, he's, he's found a partner, and he's back on track with the story he started in Genesis 1. <laughs> the next thing that you see is an instance um, often titled the golden calf. <laughs> and as somebody who is messed up, as somebody who knows what it's like to, to know what the right thing to do is and to just find yourself choosing the wrong thing, I, I agonize over this story because this is like going to a wedding and finding out moments before everything's finished that the bride is already having an affair with a guest from the groom's side of the family. It's just, it's horrible. It's gruesome. It's disgusting. It makes your heart turn. And still, there's something in it where you go, I can find myself in this story because I'm not okay. I'm not fine. I'm not perfect. I can get all dressed up and atoned for, washed down, and, I'm, and there's still just something in me that's, that's not okay. And the story is to be continued. It, it, I mean, God, there's so many cool things that happen, and, and God ultimately says as a groom, hey, this is a big deal. We're gonna do business with it. He doesn't just glance over it. We're gonna deal with it, but I chose you, and we're gonna keep doing life together. Mm. It's so cool. They are his treasured possession because he made a commitment to them through Abraham that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he's taking them to the center of the planet because they're the ones who are going to partner with him to set it all back to what he always intended it to be in Genesis 1. It's so cool. Okay, there's one story. I got more stories. Jesus. We're gonna move now more quickly through some of these. It says this, when we get to the story of Jesus, and this is now thousands of years after this Exodus story, but we see something similar going on, and, and this comes out of Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, right at the beginning of the story. And it says this, and when Jesus had been baptized, he came up from the water, and suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and the Spirit of God descended like a dove and alighted on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The beloved there, those words you can retranslate as treasured possession. It, it, this was traditionally, I didn't know this, some traditions, and don't, don't go too nuts on this, but some traditions would say the, the day that this is happening is Yom Kippur week. When Jesus is getting baptized, that's what's going on behind this. That's why all of these people are going out to the desert because John the Baptist is baptizing people. He's washing them because of atonement, because that's the holiday that's being celebrated at that time. And Jesus is with the crowd saying, wash me too. I need to be spotless, blemishless before God. And that's its own story for a different day. It says at that moment, heaven was opened up. God said, this is my beloved. And then just like with these Israelites, God immediately takes him into the desert. The temptation of Jesus happens right after this. And he's tempted by Satan three times. And each time, do you know what he responds to Satan with? Words from the ketubah. 
words from the Ten Commandments, words from God's Old Testament story. Because for him, he understands that he's being called into partnership. And as he has been preparing at this point for probably about 30 years, he has jumped deeply into the text, deeply into the ketubah to understand what is this commitment that you've made for me? I love it. I anticipate it. And now that it's here, I can defend our partnership against anything that would come against that. The thing that keeps Jesus rooted to his commitment in this really tough time is his commitment to God, his commitment to the text. How would you do if it were you? And I think it is. This is you in this story. You're invited to partnership. Do you know the ketubah? Have you spent time understanding the ways that he will lavish and cherish you, that will protect you? Do you know it? There's an invitation. We get into the parables in later Matthew, and this is, if you, if you ever read the book of Matthew and get to that last, like, fourth, it's freaky. Like, there is some weird stuff that Jesus starts throwing down at the end. And one of the things, if you don't know about this whole Jewish wedding thing, is, what, like, he starts saying this one parable where you're like, what on earth is happening right now? And it goes like this, Matthew 24, verse 36. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. This is talking about the future. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. It will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, look, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, there will not be enough for you and for us. You'd better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later on, the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you don't know the day or the hour. And all of a sudden, you get this vivid imagery behind you where you're going, oh, that's what it's talking about. The groom had proposed. He's now coming over the hill. He got delayed for a time. And spiritually for us with where we're at, I hope that there's things in you that resonate so much with this parable. For the days and the, where you've just groaned, for the nights when you've groaned, going, God, why, why? How much longer is it going to be? This world is painful. There's suffering. There's grief. How much longer? That you're not someone who came packing with just a little bit of hope, but that you're someone who, like this oil with these lamps, came going, as long as it takes, as much as I can carry, I'm going to wait. And I'm going to wait with expectation because it could be any moment. I might fall asleep sometimes, but I will not be caught anywhere else but waiting at the furthest out spot where I can see him from a distance the moment he shows his face because I'm going home. I gotta be a part of this party. I will not be someone who just shows up going, yeah, we'll just see how it goes for today. Oh, I might change my mind tomorrow. Don't do that. Oh, what a cool story. Last one. John chapter 14, verse 2. And if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to this one. 
is just so lovely. John chapter 14, verse 2. This is in the Revised Standard Edition. And this is Jesus talking to his friends, to his best friends, his disciples who have been a part of all of his teaching. This is getting close to the end of Jesus' life. He's getting ready to go to the cross. And he says this to his friends. He says this to us today. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You're not going to make it to the dad's house where he's been building a room for you, for us, unless you go with the groom. God is still in the business today of looking for partners. I think it speaks to his heart that began in Genesis 1 where he's going, the world is messed up. I'm looking for partners to help me put it back together. Who will be my partner? Ain't nothing like a wedding. But from here on out, I hope that when you're at a wedding in person, even if it's not a Jewish one, I hope it recalls some of this story and imagery to you. I hope it makes your heart race every time to know that you're also being proposed to. And if you didn't know that, I want to tell you that today he's proposing to you. The world is messed up. Yes, he's God. He can do it all on his own. But he invites you. What is your answer to this proposal? Will you drink the cup and say yes? I'm going to bring out the band as we land the plan on today. Jesus took one look at you and he said, I'll pay the price. I'll make the commitment. I want to do life with you. I will buy you with a great price. He bought you with his life. And he said, I'm going to leave for a bit, but it's just so that I can build a place onto my father's house for you and I. And when it's done, when he says it's time, I'll be back. I hope you'll be waiting for me. I'm going to leave my ketubah here, my word that outlines our life together, the ways I will care for you. I hope that to you it looks like it's more than just a contract, but like a letter that you'll read every day because it makes your heart skip a beat. But more than waiting, I hope you're excited. I hope you dream about the place we'll live in someday. I hope it changes how you spend your time today, how you choose to learn about today, the way you live your life today, the things that you look forward to, and who you choose to be. I hope you choose to tell others that they're invited too, because it's a good party. It's forever. I'm building a lot of rooms, and I have one for every single person that wants to come and beloved on our day. I'm coming back. And when I do, it will be like a party you've never seen. It will be a party that will last forever as we get back to the thing we were always supposed to do. We will tend to and manage this good earth with our dad. We will delight in life. We will rest for a lifetime and beyond. Will you choose me? I'm proposing. We have to keep in mind who we are. We're nothing special. 
we're just like this nation of Israel. We're, I mean, at, at best, we're just, we're just a screwed up group of people. It's not by our own merit that he chooses us. It's not because of how we look or how smart we are or what we can do for him. He just chooses us because he chooses us. You don't have to get too gussied up. In fact, this whole bath of atonement, this whole idea of baptism, if you haven't seen that yet, is just a symbol saying, yeah, I, I want this life. You are invited. And I'm going to invite you now to stand and sing as someone who has been proposed to, and that as you sing, you would consider the one who has proposed and what it means for you and your life. Let's stand together and sing.